Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. Packages by Expedia. You were made to be rechargeable. We were made to package flights, hotels, and hammocks for less. Expedia. Made to travel. Everybody. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm John Favreau. Uh, I'm Adisha Domesti. I'm John Lovett. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. John Favreau can't be here tonight because he and his wife Emily are expecting a baby any day now, which is. Very exciting. Uh, we're excited for him. Of course, we'll miss him, but we have a great show for you guys. Uh, we are so excited to have Adisu joining us tonight. Adisu, he managed Cory Booker's campaign, your governor, Gavin Newsom's campaign in 2018, worked for Obama, Clinton, lots of folks. Uh, we're thrilled to have him. Uh, our first guest is the youngest member of the California Assembly, Alex Lee. So give it up for Alex. And then for our second news section, we're going to try something a little different. We're going to focus on the intersection of tech and politics. And we'll be joined by Zoe Schiffer, uh, a fantastic tech reporter from Platformer, who's going to help us make sense of this town you guys call home. Yeah. So, uh, so you guys you guys can applaud while you try to pretend you don't have your fucking day jobs. Say, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh but first, after a year-long investigation into vague and unfounded claims, House Republicans voted today to formally launch an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Boo for that. It was a party-line vote. All Republicans voted yes. All Democrats voted no. You get the concept. Uh, as a reminder, Republicans haven't stated the official charges they want to bring against Biden, and they haven't proven any allegations, but that didn't slow them down. Here's Republican Senator Chuck Grassley talking about this open-and-shut case. I have no evidence of it, and I'm going to just follow the facts where they are, and the facts haven't taken me to that point where I can say that the president's guilty of anything. They got him, guys. Uh, in related news, Hunter Biden was subpoenaed by Republicans who demanded he appear today in front of the House Oversight Committee hearing in a closed-door deposition. Instead, Hunter defied that subpoena and held his own press conference outside the Capitol. Uh, where he said he would only testify publicly so Republicans can't cherry-pick and leak his testimony. So, Dan, it's tempting to treat this impeachment inquiry as a joke because the process is so clearly politicized. But let's talk about what happens next uh, and the political risks here for Biden. How do you think Biden's team figures out how to respond to this impeachment inquiry? And what would you be worried about most if you had your old White House job? I would just note that everyone here just cheered the defiance of a subpoena. <laughs> we were here in 2019, right about the time Mark Meadows was defying a subpoena in Trump's impeachment. 
No one applauded that. I'll tell you that right now. No, this was this the show we did in San Jose in 2019 was the opening of Trump's first impeachment inquiry. Nice. And you guys had a much different take. (laughs) (laughs) So I think this impeachment inquiry, like so much Republican politics over the last decade or so, is just like one really unfunny joke. But if I was in the White House, I don't know that I would be worried about this. I might be excited about it. I think if I was sitting in my old office, what... I would adv- what I would try to convince the president to do, and I understand why he would not do this because this is obviously very personal to him. This is about his son. Uh, but from a purely political perspective, I would spend every single day beating the Republicans up for this, right? There's nothing Joe Biden could use more right now than a fight with a bunch of extremist, unpopular Republicans, and that's exactly what this house is. And so, like, what I, w- I would go out every day, I would say, here are the things I'm working on, here's what they're doing instead. I would do press conferences. I mean, if I really wanted to, to play a big card, I would do a joint, I would call for a joint session of Congress. Go up there, say, here are the things, here's my agenda to lower your costs and raise your wages. And what are you doing instead of that? Take them on, make them pay for this. This is a huge political mistake on their part. And be aggressive about it. Like, the imp- there's, I think a big, huge fight with these people, with these Republicans, would do Joe Biden so much political good right now, and they've given him a gift, and he should take it. Um, well said. Speaking of gifts, let's watch a clip of CNN's Jake Tapper interviewing the Republican House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer. And my concern is that Weiss may have uh, indicted Hunter Biden to protect him from ah, having to be deposed. Yes. In the in the. House Oversight Committee yes. on Wednesday. He indicted we- him to protect him. Yes. The classic rubric. He indicted him to protect him. I got it. Well, look, this whole, this, this, Jake, this whole thing's been about a cover-up. You know, you've got two That's why he indicted concerns. him to, to protect him, to, to cover it up. Well, he- <laughs> I love Jake, man. Wow. I love not having to deal with Jake as a flack. Uh, Love it. Obviously, no president wants to get impeached, but history suggests that the political impact of impeachment is not necessarily a given, right? Yeah. I mean, look, uh, the crimes are supposed to lead to the impeachment. The impeachment isn't supposed to lead to the crimes. Mm. So they fucked that up. They got the order wrong. Huge blunder. Uh, You know, I do think that, like, the point Dan, Dan's making is like really important because I think people have a lot of assumptions or they've sort of taken a lot of conventional wisdom about what impeachment means, but impeachment means exactly what we fight to make it mean. I think there are people that say, oh, you know, uh, Bill Clinton's approval ratings w- went up, but you could, you know, tell that to President Al Gore. Uh, you know, d- uh, Donald Trump, you know, oh, all of these accusations, impeachment, it washed right off of him. Did it? Or did those weeks of attention hurt him politically in that moment? And we have the memories of fucking goldfish. My, my, I think that there's sort of, there's two ways to think about it. And I think one actually does have a pitfall that we should just be cognizant of, which is we should not be in the position as Democrats of defending kind of quotidian corruption in Washington. Like, I don't think there's anything to be uh, bashful about when you just say, look, Hunter Biden seems like he's uh, quite a sleaze, but they're trying to Uh, attack Joe Biden for committing the sin of loving his fuck-up son. And I think a lot of Americans have fuck-up kids, and they have fuck-up relatives, and we all know that it's, it's it's the act of a good person 
to try to find a way to love that person, even when they're fucking up and dragging your name through the mud. Uh, I'd rather be that than anyone going out of their way to pretend that like some of the shit that goes on in DC, including Republican members of Congress and what their spouses do and what their family members do to trade off the names of their own politicians, I think, I think is worth keeping in mind. Um, Beyond that, you know, uh, uh, Hunter Biden thinks he's going to have some kind of moment in a press conference where he's like, have you no decency, sir? Uh, I'm not sold on that. I'm not, so, I'm not excited for his public hearing any more than I was excited about his private hearing. Um, I want to say something. Uh, I, <laughs> Is this the joke backstage? <laughs> we finally found the joke. He's here's, not ready uh, to tell. Here's, here's Coward. What I, here's what I would say. Uh, look. I would say to Hunter Biden the same thing I would say to George W. Bush or Hitler, which is stick to painting. Leaving space to cut that. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, well, there's a piece of this that's like purely financial, right? And then there's the piece of this that's about Hunter Biden's addictions. And he's been very honest about his struggles with addiction. And I think if Republicans were, had the discipline to focus solely on the financial piece of this in the way he potentially used his father's position in office to make money, that would be one thing. But, you know, we know they don't have any discipline and they're attacking him for addiction problems. And I don't know anybody, there's nobody in this country who doesn't have a friend or a relative or someone they care about generally who hasn't struggled with addiction. So I do think that's a real risk for Republicans. But um, Adisu, so even if we concede that getting impeached during an election year is not ideal, Donald Trump has been charged in four criminal cases. Uh, He was impeached twice, by the way. Do you think voters will see the criminal cases as materially different? Well, first, I, I will concede that, that it, nobody wants to get impeached, but I'm not going to concede that this impeachment's actually going to happen. Um, you know, we only need three or four Republicans to realize it's political suicide to, to, to vote for this, for, uh, for them to, to, the article's never to actually um, come to fruition. So this inquiry is going to take place. I think, to your point, Dan, they're actually... Um, there will be a moment for the president to stand up there in the state of the union whenever it comes uh, with, uh, towards the beginning of the year. But um, I'm not sure it's actually going to happen. With that said, there is something materially different between the Trump indictments and this Biden impeachment inquiry, and that is that one is bullshit and, <laughs> and the other is actually based on facts. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the reality... I think here is that the Republicans are trying to blur the line between reality and, and fantasy, and we can't allow them to do that. We can't allow them to do it because talking about this and talking about it, you know, indictments and impeachments together is actually going to serve their purposes, as it were. And you know, they know that this is bullshit, right? You showed the clip from, uh, from Chuck Grassley. I, I took a quote from, uh, that I, I pulled up here from Chief Clown Matt Gates, who called... Comer and Johnson's investigations, failure theater. Uh-huh. Fox News' chief clown Brian Kilmeade called uh, the impeachment ridiculous and a waste of time. Ken Buck, uh, a Republican congressman, wrote in the Washington Post in September that Republicans in the House who are itching for an impeachment are relying on an imagined history. Um, they know this is bullshit. And I think voters, to answer your question, voters are smarter than we give them credit for sometimes, particularly the voters that I think we need to stay on our side or come back to our side um, next year. Voters of color, uh, college-educated voters in the suburbs. And once indictments turn to trials, turn to potentially convictions, I think the difference is going to be clear. But these are not the same thing. One is based in evidence, and one is based in absolute fiction. Yeah, there's, there's just no doubt that, like, Like, if you were one of the 
dozen or so Republicans who won in Biden districts that you are deeply unpleased. Yeah. <laughs> You're deeply unhappy with this situation. This is not what you want to be talking about. This is not what you want to be answering questions about. This is not what you want to be dealing and with. And yet... They all fucking voted for it today, right? Including so, Ken Buck, who wrote that op-ed. You quoted the ink was not dry on that op-ed when he turned around and voted for the thing that he said he was not going to vote for in the Washington um, Post. But maybe it is actually very believable. Yeah, um, it's very believable. You forgot about my guy Dusty ideas. Johnson from South Dakota, who said, "There's not evidence to impeach. I don't like the stonewalling the administration has done. But listen, if we don't have the receipts, then that should constrain what the House does." You guys know I've been hard on Dusty Johnson in the past. But that's a pretty solid quote. I, I don't listen to you. I just wait for my turn to talk. I just think that's a funny name. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I love it. So Hunter Biden is refusing to sit for this private deposition. He's instead demanding that he be allowed to testify publicly. During a press conference Wednesday, he said, quote, Republicans do not want an open process where Americans can see their tactics, expose their baseless inquiry, or hear what I have to say. What are they afraid of? I'm here. I'm ready. What do you think of this high-stakes game of political chicken? Here's what I think. I think he's making a lot of good points. I'd like someone else to make those points. Uh, like uh, this, this idea that we're heading to a, like a big confrontation where Hunter Biden's going to clear his name. That's not how this goes. I, I just, I would like this to be, I would like him to answer questions from Republicans the way those college professors answered the questions from Elisa Stefanik. Like lawyerly, cold, and dead. Just quiet fucking shitty, boring answers. Uh, we have to make the argument that everyone's talking about, right? That like Republicans are in are you know, Joe Biden is president as an antidote to Republican chaos, extremism, and corruption. This impeachment inquiry is a distraction from that fight, that Joe Biden's success as president is not something Republicans can run against. What they can run against is uh, trumped up charges, efforts to do what Comer is doing, which is, if you watch Comer, he has been doing these interviews with Jake Tapper for literally a year now, and he goes on and he talks in that fucking high-pitched Southern accent for 15 minutes, never saying a goddamn thing while Jake smirks and smiles and says, you don't have anything. But Comer doesn't care because they're doing what they did uh, with Benghazi. They're doing what they've done over the years to try to make it to, to just even if there's no fire they're going to do everything they can to create the to create the uh illusion of smoke so our job is to fight that what hunter biden does i don't really care i would like it to be quiet and in his own home that's how i feel about it i think it's worth talking for a second about why they're doing this right like how did they, like there are, as Tommy and Love just mentioned, 18 Republicans who are in districts that Joe Biden won. And that number is actually probably going to go up because New York, there's a court case in New York and New York is going to redraw its districts. Mm -hmm. So a bunch of these... We have cheered subpoena defiance and, and gerrymandering. gerrymandering. <laughs> <laughs> My health. We're not not <laughs> and, but when we do it, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> the short-term political imperative for why they're doing this is there's a the law of Republican physics is if you do one same thing, which is what the Republicans did when they voted to prevent the government from shutting down, mm -hmm. you have to do one much bigger, much more insane thing, and that is this impeachment. Now, there's not, like, Adisa was right. There may be a chance they will never vote to actually impeach Joe Biden, but they want to keep the investigation going the entire time so that there can be some level of suspicion and suspicion in a political environment where the overwhelming majority of Americans think most politicians are corrupt. And, you know, one thing that we, you know, the, in the Republic, in the impeachment of Donald Trump, 
there were all these subpoenas that were never actually enforced because the Democrats were on a clock. They were trying to get it done quickly, so they never pushed it to the envelope where they would force there to be, go all the way up to the Supreme Court, some of these subpoenas. Republicans would now have a year or 11 months to try to do that. And that's what they're hoping for, is to just keep this out there. Maybe they find something that is totally unrelated to Hunter Biden that can be some moment in the campaign. Hillary Clinton's emails did not come from an investigation into her email protocol. It came from an investigation into a totally bullshit special com- committee investigation into Benghazi. Yeah. And the Bill Clinton impeachment grew out of a decade older investigation out of Whitewater. The other thing, too, just part of the reason they've pursued this specific investigation is Donald Trump ran an incredibly corrupt White House where his family members profited off the administration, where people who were working for him were doing uh, shady fucking shit to position themselves to get, say, $2 billion from the Saudis after they left office. This is also about neutralizing a critique of Donald Trump to try to stir up something that seems uh, to have the contours of the kind of corruption that actually took place when Donald Trump was president. is That is what, is, that is what they're trying to do with Hunter Biden. That is what they were trying to do when, when Donald Trump says Joe Biden is a threat to democracy. It is the I'm rubber, you're glue 2024 campaign. And I, and I, <laughs> only thing I would add is, obviously we're talking about this because this happened today on Capitol Hill. It's, it's news. But one of the things for the listeners, for the folks in the audience, like, they want us to keep talking about this because it takes up space from all the other things we could be talking about, not just about things that President Biden or, and Democrats have done in Washington or elsewhere, but the things that Trump did in the past and will potentially do if he becomes president again. And so some of this is just about taking up oxygen and, uh, and making sure that, you know, we're, they, well, they did it to Trump, so they're going to do it to Biden. Impeachment, impeachment, and try to get voters out there who are paying less attention than <laughs> the listeners of the people uh, in the audience to just say, uh, throw up their hand and say they're all the same. And so we, I think it's incumbent a little bit upon us to, sure, talk about it. It's, it's important, uh, you know, news of the day, but also like not to let this become the defining issue of the next six months because it's probably not a good place for us to be fighting this yeah. uh, this election, especially when Trump becomes the nominee in a couple of weeks. I don't know. I mean, yes, I don't think we want to spend the next six months on this, but I, I think they are going to want to have this vote. They did very little press on the vote. They're not going to talk. They did it. There's a reason they did it right before they went home for the holidays, right? Just to get it done with. Now, none of them have to get cornered by Jake Sherman in the hallway of the Capitol and answer for this. They're not going to see voters for weeks. They want to keep this kind of a little bit under the radar, like they're going to go on Fox News and talk about it. They'll be on Newsmax and want anyone else to know about it. This is why I think that it's worth having a fight over this. And there are political merits to having the fight. Like there's going to be a moment where Donald Trump's a nominee and we're going to pivot hard. And that is going to be the thing. The next few months, there's nothing that would be better for, in my view, for Joe Biden's political standing than to get Democrats angry at Republicans. That's- and this this worked for Donald Trump because Donald Trump's poll numbers, we all cheered that day in December of 2019 when that impeachment was filed. Donald Trump's poll numbers went up over the course of that for two reasons. One is his numbers, his approval rating among Republicans went from 80% to 90%. So that jumped his approval rating up significantly. And it is the, one of the only times Donald Trump has ever been above 50% with independence in the entire time of his presidency was when the Democrats were impeaching him. Because the voters thought that that was not what Congress should be spending their time on. Yeah. And so, with, like, to your point, like, they want to make it about something, we should make it about something else, and we should have that argument, we should have it loudly. Yeah, maybe it's about not debating the facts. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. That should the, be more... Exactly, the that is exactly right. The facts of the matter are not 
we shouldn't be debating it. If we're yeah. talking details, if you're explaining you're losing is like super extra true when Very it comes true to in this one. Biden impeachment. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, what the voters, if you op- ask an open-ended question to voters, what are the most important issues facing the U.S.? It's inflation, immigration, democracy. Like those are the things they want us to focus on. Biden has to make the case that this impeachment inquiry is politicized and it's happening because Donald Trump, their MC, said Democrats did this to me. So now you have to do it to them. But um, Adisu, for a while, I mean, the reason we know the politics of this are a little unsteady for Republicans is because for a while they were hesitant about impeachment. It was the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world pushing for it while the kind of normal elements of the caucus were saying, I don't know that we have the evidence yet. Now the support is unanimous. What do you think changed to get us here? I think Republican congressmen are more afraid of Donald Trump and the MAGA base than they are of anything else. And um, when the rubber meets the road, that's where they go. And luckily, next November, we're going to have a chance in those 17 districts or 18 or however many there'll be uh, to to show them the opposite. Um, But I also think that the idea that the Republican Party hasn't been wholly taken over by the MAGA extreme right is just not true. There are a couple, sure, that hopefully those couple that end up voting or intending to vote against articles of impeachment, thus that it never, it never moves forward. But the super majority of <laughs> Republican Congress is now MAGA Republicans. And we just have to acknowledge that. And I know all of us, myself included, for the good of the country, for the good of the world, wish that there was a you know, sane uh, opposition on the other side, but it does not exist. And I don't think it will exist as long as Donald Trump is still in politics. It's why I still am in politics. Cause I said the day after Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 until that fucker is gone, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. And uh, it's because he's a threat to democracy. Um, and, um, but anyway, that's where I think, I think ultimately the Republican party has been taken over by Donald Trump. That is, that starts at the top, but it's, it's the members of the House in particular, and even, honestly, uh, the rest of Congress, I think, because they're, they're MAGA now, yeah. and we just have to acknowledge it. And the rest of them have resigned. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but we come back, you'll hear from California State Rep Alex Lee. Have you ever asked yourself, do I have enough Dan Pfeiffer content in my life? Every day. Well, now, now you do. Today, Dan's brand new series, Polar Coaster, drops its first ever episode. Plus, Dan and Alyssa team up in the second monthly installment of Inside 2024, dropping next Wednesday, the 20th. In light of the Trump versus Biden campaigns, the two will be exploring the strategy behind running an incumbent campaign. To listen to both of these Dan-infused episodes, <laughs> head to crooked.com friends to sign up now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Mm -hmm. More time for you. I. uh... You know, because we've been doing what a weekday, mm-hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing at therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I okay, added therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out talking. That's going to make the jokes better. 
Well, it's only going to make things better for the team. (laughs) (laughs) If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Podsafe America is brought to you by Helix Sleep. How long have you had your mattress? For most people, it's probably time for an upgrade, right? Well, Helix has exactly what you need. Everybody is unique, and everyone sleeps differently. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. Helix has models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side, models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions, plus enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating at night. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, they've got you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It's the perfect combination of comfort and support. Uh, I have a Helix mattress in our guest bedroom. Mm-hmm. Every single person who stays with us says, that bed is so comfortable. Where'd you get it? You know what I say? Where do you say? Helix. I love my Helix mattress. I have a Dawn Lux. Dawn Lux. It's very comfortable. So Lux. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash crooked and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Again, that's helixsleep.com slash crooked, and use code HELIXPARTNER20. Ask Sherwin-Williams during the March Spring Sale, March 15th through the 25th, and get 35% off paints and stains with prices starting at $28.92. That means 35% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And, of course, get 35% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Please welcome to the stage your own state representative, Alex Lee. Hello, San Jose. <laughs> These are your people. I know, this is my home city, too, so it's really awesome. You're ending the tour in San Jose. It's awesome. All right, you were 25 when you ran for the seat and won. I was 23 when I ran. Oh, there <laughs> you go. I was sworn in at 25, okay, yes. there you go. I was sworn in at 25. So you were, 20, you were 23 when you started to run. I know what I was doing when I was 23. And Running like, for office, too? No, no, absolutely not. Um, what talk to me about how you like how did you come to the decision to think that this is how you should spend your early 20s and what gave you confidence that you could win yeah so i'm 28 now so that's 3 years into so you're office basically now. old now yes i'm very old if you ask my very young staff they'll say i'm at death's door now i'm at basically 30 uh, but three years in, it feels like I've been in office for three decades, frankly. I started during the pandemic. I won my primary two weeks before this county shut down because of the COVID pandemic and it was the first ever in the entire country to do so. So you're um, like Joe Biden in that way. I think so, too. I think we are both uh, leaders in our own time like that, too. I mean, hey, Joe Biden started very early, too. I, I don't know if I could be president when, how, at his age, too, but frankly. Um, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll see. We'll see, right? 
But you know, one thing that really motivated me to run for office, and I was a legislative staffer before I ran for office, is that I was frankly tired that we had a Democratic supermajority in California, a Democratic control of all the executive office, and yet we were surrendering to fucking incrementalism. We have some of the worst problems in the entire country, and people rightfully sometimes lampoon us for it, but we have to be really innovative in how we tackle these problems. And maybe it's because I'm from, I grew up here in Silicon Valley, but I went there, I disrupted things. I said, we should think about things differently. We should tax billionaires. We should actually get people housing. And frankly, annoyed a lot of people with status quo. But I wasn't going to surrender to incrementalism. And that's why I ran. And how, how have your new, older colleagues taken to your non-incrementalism message? I think at first, a lot of people were taken aback by my approach. You know, frankly, I've been in legislative staff. I understood that a lot of things were true compromise, right? But it was really nibbling away at the edges of so many things. But I am excited as we constantly have a refresh of new members. Um, we are more and more bracing of new ideas. And frankly, it's also because how dire the consequences are or dire the issues are now. I mean, we, even though the wealthiest state in the entire country, have the largest population of unhoused people on the streets. And that is a symptom directly of our inequality. So as more and more people understand how dire the issues are, I think more people are turning to issues. And frankly, I even got the governor to say it once that I was right on something. And he doesn't usually say I was right on something. What was the thing you said you were right on? Uh, it was this year we actually investigated the gas gou- the gouging prices on, by gasoline companies. And I proposed last year a, pro- a windfall profits tax. And then we had a special session to do just that. So we adopted that proposal. It changed along the way. But I was really happy to work with Governor Gavin Newsom on this issue, too. All right. As you mentioned, and I think this is probably your signature legislative effort, has been introducing legislation to increase taxes on the wealthiest Californians, people with a net worth of uh, $50 million or more. Apologies if any of those people are in this audience tonight. Um, Can you walk us a little bit through that legislation and and why you introduced it? Yeah, so very much like Senator Elizabeth Warren's proposal to tax mega millionaires and billionaires, just 1% of every dollar of their mega fortune, that proposal at the time when we created it, and we worked with a lot of smart academics and and people worked in policy, worked on Senator Warren's proposal too, would have generated $22 billion dollars a year, $22 billion a year. And you know, the funny thing about that is it unequally is skewed towards the billionaires, even amongst super rich people, the very, very rich people we're paying. And we're talking about the Jeff Bezoses, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Elon Musk of the world, which I know you're going to talk about later. But those are the people that will be paying an enormous amount of money. And I want to highlight to you why a wealth tax, an asset tax is so important. Because our taxation system, even in California and in the, in the country, is very good at taxing you if you make a paycheck. But once you no longer make a paycheck, especially the very rich people we know as household names today, when you own everything, and which is the most classical and ancient form of power, is ownership. You own everything you need. You can leverage more stuff because you own more stuff. And that's where the rich can forgo paychecks and salaries and stuff like that because you don't need anything. You own everything. That is true power. And that system goes unchecked. And that's why wealth is so imbalanced. And especially now, as you've probably seen the headlines, California is facing a budget crisis. We can continue to support our social services, our our schools, our educators, all the great things that we want if we just said, let's tax the people that are already evading a taxation system. Now, California has a lot of very politically active rich people. How, and we're going to talk about some of them later, um, some of them 
like are have, are quite conservative, but many of them are huge supporters mm-hmm. of democratic politics in the state. What has been the response to your proposal in Sacramento? I think, you know, you have a lot of people who are very scared of the T word, and I encourage my fellow party members of Democrats to obviously always talk about taxes because we, and we talked about, and you talked about this in the previous segment, we have to be the responsible adults in the room. We have to have a true fiscal responsible conversation. If we want the best schools in the world, actual healthcare system that serves people, we have to talk about how we're going to pay for it. Republicans always say there's no such thing as free lunch. I agree. So how do we together figure out what's the most equitable way to pay for lunch? And yet we're so afraid to say, how do we pay for things we enjoy? And one other thing of why a wealth tax is so important is that for more than half of Californians, they already pay wealth tax on their most important source of wealth. It's called property tax. You already pay that. But with rich people, you own more than just one hat. Well, they own a lot more than one house. They own a lot of things. And that's what a wealth tax gets at. One of the critiques that people have had to your proposal is that it would cause trigger an exodus of wealthy people from California. And that that would diminish the tax base during a time of, you know, as you say, a budget crunch. What's your response to that? The reality is two things is that the migration, the the outbound migration of Californians tends to be upon working class Californians, people that can pay the premiums in California, whether or not they bitch and moan about California, they pay the premium. They stay here, frankly, because you can pay the premium. It's people who are squeezed in the middle and squeezed at the bottom who have no other options but to leave the state. Those are the people that leave the state. And we also know from history, under Governor Jerry Brown, who was a fiscal conservative, we raise income taxes on people. And yet the migration of high-income people did not was not this exodus that people complain about all the time. So frankly, all the times I see people complain about, well, if we do this, the rich will do this, so the rich will do that. I thought we lived in a democracy, folks. I, th- I didn't know we lived in an aristocracy where we did what the nobility wanted us to do. Let's talk a little about housing, right? Absolutely, my it favorite. is every conversation you have with people all across the country, frankly, is about housing, but particularly as it relates to here in California. What have you been working on to try to address the lack of affordable housing in the state? Absolutely. So when I ran in 2020, and just a small plug is that no one thought I was going to win in 2020, including myself, okay? Because I had $32,000 in a half a million people district to just knock on doors. But the most pressing issue that I talked about to people is housing affordability. I've shared this often. I am one of the five renters in the entire state legislature, five out of 120 people. And I'm also probably the only person that lives with their parents. Because in my area, it costs one, well, it's actually now $2 million. $2 million to buy a house. Last year, $1.6 million. And housing affordability is so critical to the very fabric of California society. Because think about this. If I, as someone who works in government and gets pretty decent well-paid, cannot afford to be a homeowner in my own community, as many people do, then what's our long-term hope in this place? Are we going to be priced out and so it's only people who pay the premium can be here? So... In the legislature, we're focusing more and more on housing affordability, taking a really active step. And under the leadership of our new assembly housing chair, Chris Ward from San Diego, my favorite tree hugger if he's listening, uh, I'm really excited what we're going to do because we can thread so many different issues, climate justice, uh, homelessness, social justice through land use, through housing issues. It is very nerdy. Oftentimes we talk about zoning or exclusionaries, policies or stuff like that. But the heart of it what I try to tell voters is that the way your community looks and feels is because of land use, is because of housing. And I believe that housing is human right, so we should be doing as much as possible as a government to make sure that everyone has a home.
this is probably not fair. I don't mean to make you the spokesperson for your entire generation, but one of the, the biggest challenges... Well, often my colleagues do, but... Yeah. <laughs> that's right, that's right. But one of the biggest political challenges for President Biden and Democrats, frankly, across the country right now is that young, the young voters who propelled our election victories in 2018 and 2020 are becoming more disengaged, more, more disengaged from the Democratic Party, not necessarily disengaged from issues, uh, frustrated with President Biden. That's probably the group within his coalition where his approval ratings have gone down the most. What would your advice be to Democrats about how they win back and re-engage the younger voters who, who are so critical to any Democratic victory? Yeah, I don't... Look, as speaking as also a strong progressive in our state legislature, and I'm also chair of the Progressive Caucus, you know, I'm someone who's frustrated with the Biden administration too. But sometimes as a young person, I'm puzzled why political analysts are so struggling with how to engage with young people. If you approach us just like every other demographic, it would make sense. Because what we're asking is, what are you going to do for us? We have asked for student loan relief. We've asked for a decisive climate change. We've just added, we've been asking very plainly for decisive action, material change, and yet we fall short, right? Especially in the student loan conversation where it's been pause and a little bit of cutoff, a little bit of this, right? But people get very frustrated by that. So I think if there is decisive material benefit that's affecting us, I think that's what we want to see. And I think this president as being the most progressive president in our history and the most pro-unionist president in our history can deliver on those things. And like in a time when the Republicans, all they want to do is impeach or besmirch his family, all these things, why not show him and say, hey, you know what? I'm just going to, like that, your student loan debt is gone. I'm going to make healthcare for him. I'm going to do all these things. I'm just going to do it because it's also just as important as to brag about our victories and do press releases. And I know as a politician, we also have to deliver on these things and make people feel the change because if people feel that this government is working for them, they really will vote for it. They will turn out for that. But right now, I think a lot of people are disillusioned and they feel there isn't that moral clarity or that decisive action. And that's what you know, Democrats want. We want decisive social change. And if we don't see that, it's hard to be inspired. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Please give it up for Alex Lee. Thank you. All right. Since we're in San Jose, a city that is sometimes referred to as the city that's an hour south of the capital of Silicon Valley. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm just, uh, that's fine. Uh, We thought we spent... (laughs) We thought we'd spend the rest of the show talking about the intersection of tech and politics. And to, to help us sound smart for once, we are joined by Zoe Schiffer. She is the managing editor at Platformer. Excellent, excellent site. And the co-author of the forthcoming book, Extremely Hardcore, Inside Elon Musk Twitter. You can pre-order it today, I imagine, right? Uh, Zoe, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to have you. Okay. So, Wait, before, can we just get a gauge of the audience so we know who we're dealing with here? How many of you are current Twitter users? Can you raise your hands? No shame. And how many of you pay for X premium? Applaud if you okay, do. Okay, we're Applaud among friends. We can go on. Does any one person in this room pay for X premium? If so, please leave. <laughs> wow. Zoe will escort you out. Um, speaking of X, premium or regular. So this week, uh, I guess this is premium now. Uh, Elon Musk continued the race to the bottom by reinstating none other than Alex Jones. Um, you remember Alex Jones, the guy who claimed that Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting was a hoax and got his band of followers to harass the families of the victims. So 
Not only did Elon reactivate Alex Jones's account, he invited him to appear in a live Twitter space, whatever you call that, space thing, with Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. Here's a clip. Gentlemen, I have to yeah, go. Yeah, I, I, I just want to okay. be sort of, uh, yeah, exactly, I want to be clear about Please, my position. I'm, su I'm super pro-human, and I mean all humans. Uh, you know, humans in America, humans in Somebody's Africa, got their thing Asia, open. And everywhere Somebody's else. Somebody's phone open in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, Vivek, Vivek, that's, that's your phone, Vivek. I'm not able to mute you. Vivek. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, Elon. Um, Sorry about that. So, um... Yes, we did play that clip on Tuesday's show, but Democrats have been promising you guys a P-tape for six years. And it's time we finally delivered. Our producer wanted us to try this one. That Vivek's a real whiz kid, huh? You got some booze, Alona. Um, so obviously reinstating Alex Jones is basically a way of signaling you don't actually care about trust and safety or content moderation or anything. But it's also part of a broader trend where tech companies like Meta and YouTube have changed their policies on political advertising. They've relaxed restrictions on disinformation, like claims that the 2020 election was stolen. Zoe, do you think these companies are basically giving up on content moderation as we roll into 2024? Yeah, I mean, none of this is an accident. I think that there is a legitimate attack on free speech happening, but it's not the attack that most people think. There's an effort from conservatives to make the work of content moderation seem dangerous and downright illegal. And this is the culmination of that plan. Have any tech companies done a good job with content moderation that you've seen? I mean, X has now set the bar pretty low. So I would say anything above having um, Alex Jones and Vivek Ramaswamy peeing on air is, is pretty good at this point. How's LinkedIn doing? Are they crushing it? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, well, like, like the Republicans in Missouri, I believe, are now going after media matters, right? So like they claim to be for free speech, but then basically they target people who just simply want accountability or to hold people accountable for their speech. Yeah, the thing about free speech on these platforms is it doesn't mean that all speech is allowed because what happens when you allow all speech is that most people actually cannot speak because they're brutally harassed. And so you need some level of content moderation. And there is a real effort right now to make that seem politicized when it's honestly not. Yeah. So DC, I mean, Democrats in particular have gone back and forth on whether we should be on these platforms and fighting it out, whether we should starve them of users and revenue, I guess. Where do you land at this point? Yeah, maybe an unpopular position for the room, but I actually, I'm not paying for premium, that's for damn sure. But, but you know, our job in campaigns to win elections at some level is to take the world as it is. And if people are using a medium it's very hard to just take yourself out of the game of talking to the people who are either getting their information, political or otherwise, from that medium. And so I had a, I had a couple debates I ran when I ran Senator Booker's campaign for president in 2020. Should we go on Fox News or should we not? Should we? I know the, there's been talk about uh, the president getting off of some of these platforms. People are there, right? And um, when you, again, when you're in a campaign, in particular your job is to communicate your message to people where they are. So my general position is, should we be supporting with advertising dollars? Probably not to the extent that we, um, certainly not in the corporate sense, but on the campaign side, it's, it's really hard to say, no, don't spend any money talking to voters and on Meta when that's where they are and you are basically ceding a battleground to, to Trump and the Republicans. 
it's interesting though. Like I, I have no disagreements at all, but the, the, like the debate that Elon Musk and these sort of guys want to have is one about kind of like abstractions and ethics, which kind of makes sense because they're the worst people at college, right? Like that's, that's what this group is. Like the worst people you met in college grown up. Uh, but like from a business perspective and just from a user perspective, yes, like what are the ethical bound, what are the more, what is, what is, what are the like, the, the like Kantian categorical imperatives around free speech? Like put that aside. Like who cares about any of that? Like, is this a place you want to spend your time? Is this a fun and exciting and cool and, and rewarding and enriching experience? Like the answer is no. And so like you can have a debate about like the, the limits of free speech on the internet, but from a business perspective and for us as users, like I don't care what that like that ethical line is. I got off of Twitter and I'm a little bit happier. <laughs> and, and that's, and so when they go after Media Matters or they go after the left or they claim, like Elon Musk claims the Anti-Defamation League is silencing him. And he's like, how dare these Jews claim I'm an anti-Semite? Uh, these fucking Jews won't stop saying I'm an anti-Semite. How many times do I have to tell these fucking Jews to get off my dick? I'm not an anti-Semite. It's just these Jews won't shut the fuck up. When will these sneaky fucking Jews stop telling me that I'm an anti-Semite? I'm gonna sue these rich, sneaky, international cabal of fucking Jews for calling me an anti-Semite because everyone knows I love humans. That's what you could hear in the fucking background of that asshole peeing. And so the point is, this intellectual masturbation around free speech is not Elon Musk's problem. The problem is that people who, are, who treat other people like dicks, who treat other people like assholes, who make other people feel bad, that's a platform people don't want to be on, which means it's not a platform businesses want to advertise on. And that's not an ethical question, that's just a product question. Yeah, I mean, you can have a platform that has Alex Jones, or you can have a platform that makes money from advertising. You can't have both. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that content moderation on these platforms generally always ends up at the same place. You start out saying you're a free speech absolutist, and then a foreign government says that you're going to be booted out of the entire country unless you take down speech. And so if right. you're Elon Musk, you take that down real, real fast. And this keeps coming from every angle. Is child sexual exploitation allowed? Absolutely not. Is this other kind of speech allowed? Absolutely not. Oh, this person's getting harassed and doxxed, and now their life is in danger. Is that allowed? And then you end up well, like Meta or the other platforms, or you end up, as you said, with Alex and Jones. Then, and then one day, a impulsive man-child buys your company for $45 right. billion, dollars, and this is where you are. I mean, so when you talk to people who work at other tech companies, the Metas, the YouTubes, are they like, thank God Elon bought Twitter. This is the best thing that's ever happened to us. No one talks about us anymore. Um, they don't say that, but I would think that that is the general feeling because the bar has been set at the absolute ground level uh, at this point. If I worked at Facebook comms, I would buy that man a drink. I don't I know. I mean, I'd... Mark Zuckerberg, can we talk about his reputation? Like he looks incredible. He's yeah. had a summer of all summers. I mean, the PR team there is like. Tybo and Taryn ACLs yeah. and no one cares. He's popular now. <laughs> it's like, it's him. like, you know, he's like an ex-boyfriend. And it's not that he, it's not that he's better. He wasn't a better boyfriend in hindsight. It's just that the boyfriend after him was so exactly. awful. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Um. You're like, he looked really good, actually. What? <laughs> so Republicans and conservative media 
like to attack the Bay Area in the tech industry as this like lefty liberal paradise. And while it's certainly true that a lot of tech company employees are progressive, their bosses and their investors are often more right wing or assholes like Elon Musk or Peter Thiel or David Sachs, the list goes on and on. Even Twitter founder Jack Dorsey in between yoga retreats uh, endorsed RFK Jr. for president. So, I mean, Zoe, do you have a sense of... Are you people surprised or disappointed or both? <laughs> both. Disgusted. Disgusted. Um, that's the right response. I heard it. Disgusted. All right. Do you have a sense of which candidates, the kind of like big money players in Silicon Valley are supporting? I feel like they've been kind of dabbling in a few along the way. I mean, yeah, I think we can watch like the David Sachses of the world and they seem to be trending towards Vivek and RFK Jr. I know, but I mean, that does seem to be like if you follow where the money is and where the um, fundraising is happening, that seems to be it. I mean, Peter Thiel, I guess, has decided to sit out this election and not donate to any more candidates in 2024. And to get himself there, he did this long interview with The New Yorker to announce his decision because he said it would force him to not change his mind. I guess the New Yorker is his accountability partner, as <laughs> Speaker Mike Johnson might say. Like, wouldn't it have been easier to just like, tweet it out, dude, not spend like 18 hours with Barton Gelman or whatever he did? Yeah, it was a weird move. I mean, if, if you were to tell me that if I did an 18-hour interview with the New Yorker and I would never get another fundraising text in my uh, life, I would do that. <laughs> it does sound pretty good. I, you know what? Dan, you raise a really important point. We're in San Jose... I'll do my pitch again. It's called Democrat Plus. You pay a monthly fee, and then you never get a text again. Join Democrat Plus today, and then you don't get another text from a House candidate you've never heard of with a picture that says, I'll kill myself <laughs> if you don't donate right now. The sound of those cheers means you just raised $30 million. Hell yeah. Got it. It's happening. It's happening. It's already vaporware. I mean, this is a hard question, but like, is there a political ethos in Silicon Valley? No. <laughs> really? This guy says no. That drone said no. <laughs> I feel like there's, I mean, I think there's a big difference between, like you said before, the people who have money who are supporting the Viveks, the Ron DeSantis of the world, and then the people who are like on the ground working at these companies and are pushing for more progressive policies. But I think... Silicon Valley kind of has its own ideology and it's like industry first in a lot of ways. Um, but that's, I, don't, I wouldn't say that's reflected in the rank and file employees. There's also a weird amount of paranoia. And I can't tell if the paranoia comes with the industry or the paranoia comes when you have lots of money and you're worried about losing it. For example, in that same New Yorker story about Peter Thiel, Sam Altman is quoted, the CEO, on again, off again, CEO of OpenAI. And he said that in a global catastrophe, he and Peter Thiel were going to wait it out together on Peter Thiel's sheep ranch in New Zealand. Oh, yeah, the prepper community. Are you new to this? Why are there so many preppers here? Tell, tell us more about the prepper community. I don't really know. Um, I, yeah, I think it's a, from what I can tell, it's like an exciting ideology that um, men in this industry, this is a generalization, but it's what I've seen, um, seem to feel like if the end of the world is nigh, then that's a very um, energizing way to go through life. And it um, justifies a lot of decision making along the way. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just my opinion. <laughs> I, I also, there's a little bit, there's a little there's a little bit of something where I feel like some of these wealthy tech people feel as though they got away with a heist. You know, they feel like 
they feel like they got away with something. So it feels a little ill gotten. And so psychologically it's about to go. It's like, it's like, they're like mobsters putting cash in there. In the, like, it's like, it's like the money that's buried with Ivana on the golf course, you know, like, you know, Trump put valuables down there. Cause on some level he knows it can all go away because it's ill gotten. And if it's, and if he got it, and if he got it the wrong way, it can go just as quickly. And I feel like there's that, there's some little broken part of that brain where it's just like, I got away with something. And at some point the world is going to catch wise, which is why part of the end of the world is trying to figure out how to get their super soldiers to wear the neck brace that'll explode if they don't follow orders, if money doesn't work. You know what I mean? I mean, I I hear you. I do. (laughs) It's very polite of you to pretend you know what he means. So (laughs) you guys remember that story? That, that they were gonna, that the billionaires didn't know what to do when their money stopped working, so they figured out they'll, they'll, they'll put little braces, they'll put things around the neck so that the guys keep listening. I think, I, I, I think they gotta go outside. <laughs> um, bring us back, Tommy. <laughs> Good luck. So, I'm here. The last few years haven't been the best for some parts of the tech community. You had higher interest rates making it harder for venture capitalists to, to raise money for the next you know, round of whatever. That's so, what that parade is about. That's that, we're going to do that walkathon for them. Yes. <laughs> Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. You had these major crypto exchanges going bankrupt. You have leading figures like Sam Bankman-Fried potentially doing jail time. Uh, but now, all of a sudden, the price of Bitcoin is back up. The New York Times just wrote an article about a 27-year-old who raised nearly $20 million to build a crypto city in the Mediterranean. I'm sure that'll pan out. Um, is the tech bubble back? I mean, have you heard of artificial intelligence? Tell me more. <laughs> Tell me everything. Yeah, I think we have a new bubble. <laughs> you have a new bubble and it's AI? I mean, I think the tech, there's a lot of money in Silicon Valley still and we will find ways to funnel, and we, I'm not part of this, they will find ways to funnel it into um, various projects. And I think artificial intelligence, you know, has more legitimacy, I would say, than crypto. But definitely it's where the money is at now. I mean, it does feel like there's this real urgency because there hasn't been a new thing since a smartphone was invented. So we're at 15 years from now. So it's like we're waiting for the thing that's going to create all this new wealth. And crypto is supposed to be that thing. Yeah. And then it wasn't. And so now it's AI. And so if you just put... Like there are all these, I mean, you've written many of these stories about these people who just basically put AI in a deck and people are throwing millions of dollars at oh, yeah. them. Just, yeah. It's like it's AI for dog food. And you're like, AI powered dog food, take my money. Yeah. <laughs> well, the alternative is that Apple's like, now the phone has four cameras. You're like, why? It's, I don't it's like, hey, camera. people, I don't know how, how much time you spent with your Alexa recently, but I think I'm any smarter in 15 years. So. I want to read you an email I received from my friend Samir on May 30th, 2011. This is real. Speaking of crackpot financial schemes, anyone want to buy some Bitcoins? I want you to know that we decided not to buy Bitcoins that day because we had a different stock we were interested in. It was TiVo. (laughs) Adisu, you're still... In politics, that's you're real. Working on campaigns, you're cutting <laughs> or you ads. were before tonight. <laughs> the like hope and the anxiety and the Democratic Party is all about the impact of AI potentially on campaigns. Are you seeing any of this play out in this cycle? Yeah, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, yesterday in a Pennsylvania House race, um, I, don't ask me why I know this. AI was used to phone bank for the first time. Really, Liter- like a like a conversation with a voter via a robot, basically. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it probably wasn't that effective. Um, but, uh, 
but I think we're, yes, the short answer is we're at the beginning of what I think is going to be potentially a scary, potentially a, uh, exciting, you know, revolution of every industry when it comes to AI, but politics, in, uh, as well. And so it's not, I, I think, you know, I think back to 08, was it Facebook in 08 or Twitter? Maybe it was Facebook. It was in Facebook. Facebook in 08 and Twitter in 12. And, um, you know, it, there's always something in some, in a, in a cycle that becomes the next big thing until it's not. In I'm 2020 not, it was COVID. <laughs> that that stuck around for a while but uh i'm not sure if this is going to be the ai cycle or or another one but i do think it's coming because i actually think it can be potentially very helpful to to our industry i also think it's very dangerous uh because uh you know when it comes to jobs and you know we you usually have human beings making phone calls for example and if ai gets really good at uh at, at phone calls uh goodbye field organizing, right? Um, it becomes a lot cheaper to do that, et cetera. And so we're not there yet. I don't think this is the cycle probably where it takes over, but um, we're all going to have to figure this out just like we figured out every other tech thing for the last 20 years I've been doing this. I do, I do worry though. Like we see with, you know, artif artificial images that the threat isn't people thinking fake things are real, well, that is a threat, but just as big as the threat that people start seeing real things as fake, that you start to doubt whatever you see and whatever you hear. Already, I think, I know that I am deluged with text messages and phone calls that I don't answer. And even if you have an AI phone call that can just as effectively reach people, really what you're doing is creating a device to make uh, phone calls more ubiquitous and then less useful as a result, which, like we, we we've been talking about this in a bunch of different ways, but like so much of what politics is now is figuring out how to break through the noise and break through the clutter. And for years and years, like we basically built a kind of information system that values almost true kind of dull kind of, uh, um, uh, semi semi emotional things that like, that feel true but aren't necessarily true. And that's a perfect thing for artificial intelligence to generate vast amounts of. And so like we kind of devalued information and then built a system that can make it even cheaper. And like, I don't know what happens on the other side of it, but maybe we have to, maybe the only way out is through. <laughs> there, the intersection of politics in AI is incredibly fascinating, right? There's all the, the dangers of deep fake videos and all of that. And I think Lovett raised a really important point, which is, and Adisa, I'm sure you've seen this, but it, people are so skeptical right now of politicians and political ads that the only ads that really work are the ones that use a politician in their own unedited voice, where it's just like footage of Donald Trump saying something, or a voter making a, a regular person who's not a politician explaining why it would be bad to take the Affordable Care Act away. The Biden campaign has an ad up like that right now. And AI actually has the potential to render the first one, not actual AI, but the prospect of AI. Donald Trump has already said that a very legitimate video of his was a deep fake. And he's going to do that throughout this campaign. And so that's a big thing. But then there's some other really bad ways in which AI, or annoying ways that AI is going to affect us, which is the only thing that's preventing us from getting more fundraising emails and texts is the time it takes to write those. <laughs> and then when you take yeah. that friction out of you're just asking ChatGPT to send you an insane text about you know, how, why the entire world's going to come to an end if you don't give money to a pack you've never heard of five minutes ago. Like that's, and it, it's going to reward the worst, like, like most grifty players. But there are other ways in which I think it's incredibly, it could be incredibly useful because ultimately 
politics is the is the marriage of art and science in words and data and there are ways to think much more to understand what politicians are saying and at every level right whether it's well, there's all this scrutiny on what comes out of president biden's mouth in the campaign right what like what is that the right message what's mean the speech what's mean the ads but you could use you could then take the data you're using to inform that and apply it across every conversation that every voter is having not by this is not saying we're going to create a fake chatbot to have that conversation but by sort of smoothing out the process by which you're using the most optimized messages in every single uh, interaction. And that is like a very, very interesting thing. And my DMs are open on LinkedIn if anyone wants to talk about it. So, <laughs> so interestingly, like for all the anxiety about AI and deep fakes and things ahead of us, it does seem like a lot of people have been driven off Twitter recently, not because of deep fakes, but because of like people surfacing old videos and saying that they were from Gaza when really they were like Syria in 2015. Is that a Twitter specific problem or what do you think is happening there? Yeah, I mean, Elon Musk has promoted a crowdsourced fact-checking tool as the first line of defense between telling fact from fiction on his platform. And I think we've seen more recently that that's woefully inadequate in times of crisis. We need a multi-pronged approach, especially during an election. And that's going to take human content moderators, and it's going to take AI, and it's going to take sophisticated tools. And the trust and safety team at X is a shadow of its former self. They've really devalued and underinvested in all of these things. And I think that's going to be an enormous problem in the coming election. I hate the community notes thing. It's obviously a ridiculous thing. But I will say that someone attacked Taylor Swift for when she was named the Time Woman of the Year, saying, how could this billionaire person who could end the war in Gaza with one Instagram post be you know, get this award? And the community notes thing was, traditionally, Instagram posts have not ended century-old conflicts. <laughs> that was truly a great one. That's, what a ridiculous... What a ridiculous Thing to think Taylor Swift could do. That's not what she could do. What she could do is solve a lot of unsolved murders. <laughs> <laughs> On Tuesday, a jury in San Francisco ruled in favor of Fortnite maker Epic Games in their lawsuit against Google. Epic Games claimed that Google had an illegal monopoly in the Google Play Store. After the win, Epic Games CEO Tim Sweeney told The Verge, quote, it's a great day for all developers to see that the Sherman Antitrust Act works in the new era of tech monopolies. Um, how big a deal do you think this decision is? And do you think it's going to impact other antitrust cases going forward? Yeah, I mean, it's a really big deal, although I will say we're a few years out from knowing exactly what the final answer to this is. Google has already said that it's going to appeal. If the ruling stands, then I think we can expect to see a more robust app ecosystem where smaller developers are able to circumvent Google's in-app um, fees, which are 30% right now. And we might see multiple app stores and all of that is very good for consumers. But I do think it's a little early to know what this could mean for Apple and other big tech companies. Because Epic lost the same suit against Apple, yeah. right? Because Apple kind of, makes yeah. the phones. So they had a different set of rules. Is that right? Yeah. And also Google... Um, won a similar case that was decided by a judge last year. And so I think it's, it's still a total question mark. This was a jury trial, which ended up being quite important. This is also a case where I think President Biden has gotten a lot of credit for putting in place regulators who are, have a track record of writing and thinking and saying things that I think are a lot tougher on tech monopolies. Do you think the toughness of those appointees has played out in practice in terms of, I don't know, even changing behavior in Silicon Valley? 
I don't know. I mean, when we think of the FTC, we certainly have a much stronger um, FTC and more aggressive FTC than we have in the past. At the same time, Lena Khan, like there have been a lot of losses. And I think that was part of the strategy. You all might know better than me, but my understanding of her approach was we're going to take really big swings and there will be a lot of losses along the way, but we have to take a stand for consumers and change the definition of um, what the FTC is really here to do. So I think it's actually, um, it's kind of yet to be determined what all of that looks like, but people are definitely paying attention. It's interesting because Donald Trump, you know, likes to pretend he's like this big populist, but there are a lot of these tech companies who are basically putting on pause the idea of merging or acquiring someone to see what happens in the election. Because if Donald Trump gets in, that'd be much better in their view for big tech monopolies, right? And that, that's actually going to, I think, a, uh, a, that's not the exact argument, but it's part of the overall populist case that Biden can make is that Donald Trump is going to, that, that they're rooting for him because that it is better for monopolies and big, huge companies under Trump because they're scared that Joe Biden is going to enforce antitrust laws. Yeah, I also do think sometimes this debate, like the risks posed by these companies being so big and having monopolies, like that creates one set of very big challenges. And I think it's really important that we have aggressive antitrust laws and regulations. But I also think it sometimes is a quick thing for, I think, politicians to say to like kind of wave off some of the issues that actually don't have as much to do with the size of these companies, like uh, issues of, 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 of uh, misinformation, privacy issues. Like, I think the fact that these companies are so enormous and have so much power impacts the ways in which they don't have to respect consumer privacy, consumer rights. They don't have to worry about, about regulation in part because of their influence and their lobbying. But regardless of whether they break Amazon in half or spin off the, you know, spin off, uh, um, make, you know, give the, allowing WhatsApp to be under, under, uh, um, who bought that meta? Meta. Regardless, we need a privacy law. Like regardless, uh, we need uh, regulation of, of these companies. Yeah. hundred uh, percent. Okay. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to play a game. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. 
Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't. (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you all for joining us this evening. The most American questions are the questions the people of San Jose ask every day. Can we squeeze any money out of meditation? Would people pay a monthly fee to access extra features on their smart blender? How can we brand our toilet camera in a way that assuages privacy concerns? What if we could make life a little better and worse while getting filthy fucking rich? So it's time for a game we're calling, cue the slide, Tech, tech, boom. (laughs) Zoe and Dan will be one team. Disu and Tommy will be the other. I will alternate asking each team a weird tech industry question. If they can't answer the question, the other team has the chance to steal. Are you ready? Yes. Born ready. Question first, we'll start. Do we have to buzz or something? No. no, You go, okay. We'll we'll alternate. Don't worry, I got this. Okay, I I believe you. Ish. You question... If it's Ken Jennings, you would just trust him. (laughs) I happen to be a drunk idiot. (laughs) Just yesterday, the New York Times profiled a 27-year-old NYU dropout who is raising money to build a crypto city for tech bros and tastemakers in the Mediterranean. What is that guy's name, and what is the name of the tech utopia he reportedly tried to build in Ghana before pivoting? Praxis is this. Yeah, that's the the current one. His name is Dryden Brown. That is correct. I was going to give you multiple choice. No, no, no. Shout out to Santa Barbara. He's from my hometown. So we are screwed. Tommy and Adisu. (laughs) Fill in the blank. One of the internal slides revealed by the Wall Street Journal's Facebook files is a slide titled user experience of blank is exacerbated by our platform, complete with a graph outlining how teen girls experience severe negative mental health outcomes by using Instagram. What is that user experience? Is this multiple choice? No. (laughs) I think Their experience of blank. I'd like to phone a friend. (laughs) Do you want to steal? Zoe. Is it filters? No. No, no. No, no. It's an emotional experience. Ex- wait, 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 can you, sorry, can you read that just one more it's time? It's the user's experience of blank is exacerbated by our platform. And it's about teen girls experiencing negative mental health comes, health outcomes. Something outcome. to do with B? I heard, I heard body dysmorphia. Body You're in the ballpark. Oh, okay. Uh, it was a body broad, image? It was just downward spiral. Their experience of downward I spiral. I like need to work on the Mad Libs. Yikes. That was... That's sad, but hard to guess. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> okay. So it was hard. 
Who cares? <laughs> Who tweeted Tommy Nadisu? The coronavirus panic is dumb. On March oh. 6, oh. 2020. Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Starting a nearly uninterrupted four-year string of being awesome. Uh, Dan and Zoe. Read my book to find out more. Which startup launched by Jeffrey Katzenberg is considered one of the biggest failed startups Quibi. in history? Yep, you got it. They were in our building. Tom, they were in our building. Tommy and Adisu, Juicero, mm. a famous flop, sold a $400 Wi-Fi connected juice press that used proprietary packets of pre-mangled fruits. Bottomed out because why? A, you could buy juice at the store. B, there were more affordable juicers. C, you could squeeze juice with your hands. Or D, you could eat a piece of fucking fruit. <laughs> uh, I remember this story well because I was a little drift in my career at the time, and I had a meeting with a really smart, really nice person. I actually think Dan connected me with. The life fucking um, story. We talked about a bunch of different interesting things happening in Silicon Valley. I lived in San Francisco at the time, and Juicero came up, and I was like, oh, that sounds cool, but I'm not like a juice guy. But uh, it turned out you could just squeeze the pack. That's correct. You could just squeeze the juice out of you them. You didn't need the $400 like, timed release system that sat in your kitchen. Insane, insane, and re remember it was also it was um, it was like it, it was uh, end user license agreement f like like fucked with so that like if your juice packet was past a certain date the machine wouldn't squeeze it for you, like the machine but your hands would still cut. yeah like the machine would be like no no this juice is not for you get are, out of juice are the other answers incorrect or is that one just super correct because I think you can just eat some fucking fruit oh yeah that's a good point that's a good point <laughs> you got the right answer I don't know why you're arguing. Yeah, sorry. Take the points. I'll take the points. I didn't think of that. <laughs> Which disgraced tech mogul's lawyer told the media this week that his client may be at the very top of the list at the worst, as the worst person I've ever seen do a cross-examination? Sam Bankman-Fried? That is correct. His lawyer said that to Bloomberg. Is he in jail currently or is he on home arrest? Wait, jail? I thought he was in jail, but I'm hearing home arrest. But I'm not a crypto gal. I think he got sent to jail for doing too much internet. Yeah. yeah. He's like talking to Michael that Lewis like it. 500 times. That's, that is accurate. Right? It's a good Democrat you're talking about. All right. <laughs> Tech weirdo Brian Johnson made a splash this fall by insisting he had actually lowered the biological age of his penis by 15 years. How did he claim to do this? Hint... It's your second thought. I have no idea. How did he lower, how did he claim he lowered the age of his penis by 15 years? Like, those, like the weights that kind of pull on it? It's inc so that's your first thought. <laughs> What's your second thought? You guys want to steal it? I've, yeah, I, nope. I don't Giggles? I feel like it's all them. <laughs> Anybody out there want to guess? That's right, by electrocuting his penis. <laughs> According to Johnson, there's this technology. You have a wand and you sit in a chair and the technician uses the wand and basically shocks your penis. Hey, remember when smart people used to invent airplanes and antibiotics? No one got that one. <laughs> I also just like... Why did he think it worked? <laughs> During her trial, jurors heard, who's up? Uh, let's go this way. It's, it's, Tommy, pay attention. What's that listening? 
This is our we have done, this is our last show of the year, guys. During your trial, the, the thing is, the thing they used to shock me, John has it. During her trial, jurors heard Theranos' Elizabeth Holmes make a number of false claims to journalist Roger Parloff, who recorded their interviews for Peace and Fortune. Which of these was not a lie? Which was not a lie that Holmes told during those interviews? A, that Theranos had worked with the U.S. military in Afghanistan. B, that Theranos had worked for foreign governments. That C, Theranos had worked with border security. D, that Theranos had worked correctly when performing over 600 tests, making it competitive with Quest Diagnostics. That one's a lie, right? Yeah, it's got to well, be. Well, they're all, which is the lie she didn't tell. Oh, okay. It's such a confusing question. She told? It's, it's like jazz. Afghanistan? I, no, because she, she would do. No, the Afghanistan one I think is real because that was part of their, they had uh, Jim Mattis on the board. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Was, okay, so uh, Afghanistan. Defense secretary. Um, I think it's the, the, that they worked with people overseas is my yeah, guess. Yeah, let's go with that one. Incorrect. It was the border. What? I thought oh, we had to steal. Oh. Did, did you know the answer? Border patrol, obviously. <laughs> You got it. I believe you. You're trust. You got a trustworthy face. Dan and Zoe, which of these unfortunately named failed apps is a real unfortunately named failed app? In other words, one of these is real. A. Hitler, no vowels. <laughs> a music app designed for users to upload their hits and have them reviewed by other musicians. B, blow me, a balloon delivery startup. <laughs> C, fascism, a fashion app designed for users to upload their looks and have them critiqued by other fashionistas. Or D, F my dog, a pet finder app that seems to have been pretty normal except for that rank name. <laughs> one of those is real. Which one? Is it Hitler? Blow me, fascism, or F my dog. What do you think? I'm really, I'm between fascism and blow me, which I don't like to be, but. Um... <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's like to be on Twitter right now. You're, you're always stuck between fascism and blow me. Let's go with fa fascism? Yeah. That's you got it. What? <laughs> And Ashton Kutcher and Mia, Kup Mia, Mia Kunis invested in it in 2011. <laughs> of course they did. And finally, and anybody can take it, who wrote this tweet? I just gave a squirrel a piece of bread, and it straight smashed. Travis Kelsey. You got it. <laughs> so we got it. It was Travis Kelsey. I just gave a squirrel a piece of bread. Every word smelled, spelled wrong. <laughs> squirrel spelled in, I guess, the British way. That's actually how we spell squirrel now, though. Yeah. He decided it then, and that's the correct. Uh, I, not before E, a piece of bread, and it straight smashed all of it. I had no idea they ate bread like that. Ha ha, hashtag crazy. <laughs> that was Travis Kelsey. Uh, Zoe and Dan, you've won the game. Yeah, uh, I think so. <laughs> yeah, they did. Congratulations, you've won two tickets to Praxis. <laughs> We found it on, and I quote, traditional European Western beauty standards on which the civilized world at its best points has always found success in. Cool. Cool. It's like I always say, inside every techno-libertarian millionaire is a tiny little fascist waiting to pop out like an alien through John Hurt's abdomen. <laughs> Give it up for Zoe, everybody. Before we go... 
we thought it'd be fun to take a couple questions or maybe hear a couple tech horror stories. We're just going to open up. Did you work at Hitler? Or that was a fake one. <laughs> Did you work at fascism? We want to know. Did you work Tom, at Juicero? You, pronou you pronounced the E. Uh, Hitler. Hitler. Uh, do we have a uh, mic so out there? I think chance? Austin's out there. We can bring the Austin lights up. Out there. Oh, oh, Ven's going out there. Sorry. We are we open to questions or uh, a, uh, what's that website, Demois, the one where you get gossip? Anonymous gossip about tech freaks also welcome. Or questions. I have none of that. Isn't this your fifth anniversary? Is it what? Your fifth anniversary. Fifth anniversary of what? Your company. Is it? I don't think so. No? no. We started in seven. Early 2017. I don't remember before this. I've always been here. I'll always be here. Here's but my thank question. You. When you look back on the founding of Crooked Media, is where you are now where you thought you would be? Did it grow the way you thought? I remember that first meeting when Tommy just wrote on a cocktail napkin, San Jose. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, I'll just, uh, uh, here's what I'd say. We, like, when we were doing the podcast that was on The Ringer, and we decided to do Pod Save America and try to launch a company around it, we were protected by just how little we knew. Uh, we, had the, we had the confidence of, of ignorance, true, true ignorance. And that gave us, I think, the freedom to believe that this could work. And I think we thought there were a lot of other people that felt like we did that would we want to be part of a community like this. But I don't think, A, we understood just how hard it would be to, to build a company and how, how much smarter the people would have to be who would ultimately need to do it. Yeah. Uh, and then B, I think like, no, we could have never anticipated um, that we would be here all these years later. I assume, you know, look, we thought we'd give it a year and then I'd be on some kind of failed Roseanne reboot writing jokes for... Didn't that almost happen? It did almost happen. That was, that's my other fucking path. <laughs> she got canceled, right? Yeah. Yeah, we sat in John Favreau's kitchen for months, which Emily did not like. Um, and we created a medium website, which we barely knew how to do, announced it and called it a company. You bet. We had, to, we had to use the website getcrookedmedia.com because Crooked Media and Crooked.com, there was a, a, a guy in Prescott, Arizona. His, his career was in porn, but his passion was taking on the liberal media. So eventually we had to, remember that? The porn king of Prescott, Arizona? <laughs> what happened to that guy? Anyway, we got it, the website, eventually. <laughs> oh, man. What else we got? What <laughs> My question is actually for Dan. I'm sorry, it's not a tech question either. I was just reading the, some of the bios, and in yours, on, uh, it stated that you are banned from going to Russia because of Putin. I sat back and I'm like, is that really true? And if it's really true, what the hell did you do to Dan? Dan dated his daughter. It <laughs> In the ugly early aughts, ugly breakup. Look, it's messy. It, 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 it is true. And the reason I am banned to this day from traveling to Russia is in the, when Russia invaded Ukraine the first time in 2014, uh, I was previously scheduled to go on Meet the Press to do an interview about something else because no one sends me on TV to talk about major foreign policy, but it happened basically while I was, after I was already scheduled. So our friend Ben Rhodes, uh, who's Tommy's 
a lot of rule those here. He gave me some very aggressive talking points about why Putin's decision to invade Russia was really a sign of weakness, not strength. And so when the Russians banned a whole bunch of people, a bunch of Americans uh, in, in retribution for the U.S. sanctioning a bunch of Russian officials, I got added to that list, which answer the mystery of which people in the world still watch the Sunday shows. <laughs> wow. Great. Very observant reading of the bio. Well done. What else we got out there? Okay, I have a question about relational organizing versus AI. Let's hear it. Do you want to pause for so, the topic? <laughs> well, okay, so the question is, do you think that relational organizing is going to become more important? like walking out and canvassing in person versus the phone calls and texts? Wow, that, that may be a question for me. It's a great question. Uh, it is a really good question. I actually haven't really thought about the implications of AI with it, but that's really interesting. Um, for, for those of you who don't know, relational organizing is really just, you know, in the old days, like five years ago, uh, you would get a list of your neighbors or what have you, or you'd walk into a campaign office and they'd give you a list of voters and you'd go knock the doors and you'd talk to them about your candidate. Now, the sort of in the last two or three cycles, the, the organizing hot thing du jour, which I actually think, to answer your question, is the right way to do organizing, is basically tapping your, the contacts in your phone <laughs> um, and allowing you to sort of define who within your own iPhone or Android or whatever it might be, contact list is a target voter and communicating with them, presuming you are, if they're in their phone, you already know them. I think it is a more effective way to organize because organizing is all about relationships. And if somebody's in your phone, that presumes that you already know them and you already have a relationship with them. And so your communication with them will be more effective than a stranger coming to their door. I'm not, I don't really know how AI, I mean, I feel like AI could help sort of accelerate it ultimately, but it still comes down to the, the, the core power of relational organizing is that you know the person you're talking to before you show up and talk to them about politics. And thus, they are more likely to accept what you have to say, pick up the phone, whatever it may be. And maybe AI can just help make it basically a little more efficient. All right. Well, listen, thank you, San Jose. Thank you, Adisu. Thank you, Zoe. Thanks, Alex Lee, for being here. Great to see you. Have a great night. Good night, everybody. If you want to get ad-free episodes, exclusive content, and more, consider joining our Friends of the Pod subscription community at crooked.com slash friends. And if you're already doom scrolling, don't forget to follow us at Pod Save America on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for access to full episodes, bonus content, and more. Plus, if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a review. Give us your own takes. And give us a review. Give us your takes on our takes. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. Our producers are Olivia Martinez and David Toledo. Our associate producer is Farah Safari. Writing support from Hallie Kiefer. Reed Churlin is our executive producer. The show is mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Jordan Cantor is our sound engineer with audio support from Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Madeline Herringer is our head of news and programming. Matt DeGroat is our head of production. Andy Taft is our executive assistant. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Haley Jones, Mia Kelman, David Tolles, Kirill Pelaviv, and Molly Lobel. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. 
If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Everyone knows the holidays can take a toll on your bank account. If you're looking for creative ways to increase revenue and give your family and friends the holiday treats they deserve, then you need to get started with Squarespace's new feature, Squarespace Courses. Woo! Squarespace has the tools you need to create and sell your own online course. Uh, Start with the professional layout that fits your brand, upload video lessons to teach techniques and skills, and tailor your course with the powerful built-in Fluid Engine Editor. With Squarespace Courses, you can create engaging content your audience will love, then simply add a paywall and set the price. Plus, you can charge a one-time fee or sell subscriptions. Is this our chance to do our own Trump University? I yeah. feel like this is nice. a this is crooked. A, you we're sitting on a gold mine here, Squarespace. Yeah. We have a one takes one hundred and one. That's that's our oh, first first offering. I love that idea. <laughs> write someone, write that down. <laughs> takes. <laughs> I got it right here. Takes. That's a good one. Turn your creativity into income with Squarespace courses. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to www.squarespace.com slash crooked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash crooked.